Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark, Matthew, glory to you, Lord Christ. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever, and Jesus touched her on the hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began serving him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders that they would cross over to the other side. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Does the church believe that God heals today? Does the church pray for God to heal today? When I was in Jerusalem just this past June, as we gathered with about 2,000 Anglicans from around the world, this is an every five-year conference that we gathered for, there was a moment when I was invited to the microphone to read a piece of scripture and offer a short prayer and leave it to a preacher. You can't just leave it at that. I had to say something else. And so I felt that I needed to give testimony. I had to share about something profound that had happened the last time this gathering had been together, five years earlier, 2013, in Nairobi, Kenya that time. Well, as many of you know our story, uh, our second oldest daughter had been chronically sick for seven years leading up to that conference, in and out of children's hospitals, seven years. And in 2013 in Nairobi, in that gathering of Anglicans, we saw a miracle take place. Our daughter was healed. She never got sick again. And so I got up to the microphone to give testimony to this, and as you all are familiar with me, I began to lose it, but I really lost it, like in front of the whole crowd, and I, it was ugly tears and just, you know, just awful, like point to Jesus, and oh, you know, it was terrible, but wonderful. And yet, you know, whenever I tell that story, whenever we talk about the fact that we experience such incredible healing in the life of our daughter, I'm always careful because this is not everyone's story with prayers for healing. It wasn't ours for seven years. And this is dealing with the question of the seeming problem of unanswered prayer. Right? How do we deal with the fact that we put these petitions out before God and God seems to answer some of those prayers miraculously and then others don't seem to get answered in the way we're asking I ended up, because of our daughter's story, ended up teaching on this subject a number of times in a number of places. And I've talked about it in this context as well. So whenever I talk about healing and praying for healing, I always have to begin with three important caveats. These are the three really bad answers that Christians can give on this question of why does God not always seem to answer the prayers the way I'm asking him to answer. Right? There's three important caveats. There's three bad answers. You see, there's, there's the deist bad answer. 
The deist bad answer of why God doesn't always answer the prayers of healing the way we're asking him to is that view that says, well, maybe God isn't really in the business of healing. You know, a deist worldview says that there is a God, but he's off in heaven somewhere, far away, distant, set the universe in motion, and basically has fallen asleep or lost interest. And so he's not actively involved in our world today. So that's why those prayers don't always get answered the way we want. That's the answer. But, and, and you may say, this can't be alive in the church. I mean, we, we're not deists. But in practice, isn't it true that this lives in the church so often? I mean, how do we respond conversationally when someone raises a healing issue or an issue of sickness or, or health concern, right? As Christians, is it not true that usually our speech ends up being something like this? Well, which doctor are you seeing? Which specialist? I was on WebMD and I was reading about a possible diagnosis you should consider. And there's a YouTube video from Dr. Oz that I'm going to send you and you should look at that. Now, all of these things may be helpful, but where is prayer in the conversation? Are we functional deists when it comes to sickness? Do we run to prayer? As C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Miracles, he says, all the essentials, all the essential bits of other major world religions would, I think, remain unimpaired if you subtracted the miraculous. Do you hear that? He's saying, in all the other world religions, as he can best tell, if you take the miraculous out of it, they carry on. But you cannot do that, he writes, with Christianity. It is precisely the story of a great miracle. A naturalistic Christianity leaves out all that is specifically Christian. We cannot be deists. That's the wrong answer. But it's not just deism is a bad answer. The other bad answer is the diminished answer. The answer that says, well, God really wants to help. You know, but somehow the way he set up his universe, he's limited himself. You know, he wants to, but he just can't always do that. And we see this best displayed in Rabbi Harold Kushner's book from the 1980s, Why Good Things, wait, when, sorry, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. See, Rabbi Kushner was dealing with the horrifying reality of the death of his own 14-year-old son. And in that context of, that, of that, that great pain, he said he could not reconcile the two doctrines of God's sovereignty and God's goodness. He said, these can't live together based on what I've seen. And so he said, I've got to choose and I'll choose God's goodness. God is good, he would say, but maybe he's not as powerful as I'd like him to be. But that's a diminished view of who God is. And that's not the God we find in scripture. But it's not just a deist bad answer we get in church sometimes when it comes to why healing prayers don't always go the way we seem to want. It's not just that we get a diminished answer, but we also get, worst of all, the deficiency answer. When people in the church say things like, your faith is not enough, I guess. Or maybe your morality isn't enough for God to listen to your prayer. I mean, it's a great cop-out for faith healers just to say, well, I guess... There wasn't enough faith. I guess there's something broken or sinful in your life that has not been confessed, and that's what's getting in the way. It's the great cop-out, but it is not biblical. God is not a vending machine. We don't take our quarters of faith, stuff them in the vending machine called God, and then hit the button and say, now I get what I want. And yet, is that not how we function sometimes towards God? 
A few years ago, a friend of ours, I've told this story before, uh, another pastor, another priest, uh, got injured in a hockey game. He was playing against other clergy. Clergy are horrible when they play sports together. You need to understand this. We have a tendency, I think, to take out all the aggression that we are not allowed to show professionally and vocationally on each other on the field or on the ice. And he ended up getting pummeled and hurt his back. He's at home lying on the couch. Some of you heard the story. And another pastor calls up the house and his wife answers. And he says, how's David doing? And she said, well, you know, we, uh, we've got him on the couch and he's got some Advil in him and we'll see how it goes. And, and he said, we got to pray. And, and she said, well, yeah, we have been praying, but he's still on the couch. And then he said this, who prayed? <laughs> who prayed? Because that's the deficiency answer. Somehow the reason God's not giving us what we want in this prayer is because there's something deficient in me or in you. And again, this is not the picture of biblical Christianity. Job's friends say that exact same bad answer. And what does Job call them? He calls them worthless physicians. And God, at the end of the book of Job, agrees and says to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, these so-called counselors of Job, my anger burns against you because you have not spoken of me what is right. These are not true answers to the question of healing. But the gospel says something amazing about healing, even in these short verses here. This story of, of Jesus and Peter's mother-in-law and the crowds. There's an incredible story here, incredible good news about praying for healing. See, what we find as we look at these short verses is that praying for healing is, first of all, Christ-centered. It's all about Jesus. It's all focused on Jesus. He's the power source. I do not believe in the power of prayer for healing. I do not believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of Jesus to whom I pray about healing. Right? It's Christ-centered. It's all about him and his power. But it's not just Christ-centered as we pray for healing. It's cosmos-wide. It's, it's, it's for the whole of creation. It's going to go into crazy, unexpected places, this healing. But not only do we find in this passage that this is Christ-centered, this prayer for healing, cosmos-wide, but ultimately praying for healing is catechetical. There's the money word. It means teaching. It forms us. As, as we pray for the healing of ourselves and for others, we are actually catechized. We're taught. We're formed in how to pray. So first we, we look at how praying for healing is Christ-centered. See, verse 14 begins, here we are in Matthew chapter 8. Verse 14 begins by saying, and when Jesus entered Peter's house. That, that's where the whole story begins. He enters their home. Jesus goes in. It all begins with Jesus coming onto the scene. Jesus coming into their house. You see, the story we're going to see is completely and totally about Jesus. And in fact, you see just how much the story is all about Jesus. If you take the pronouns in the text that are attributed to Jesus, the he and the his and the him, and if you actually insert the name Jesus, you'll just see how much this entire passage is about Jesus. Let me read verse 14, 15, and 16, switching the pronouns for the name Jesus. So we get the point of how much this is all about Jesus. And when Jesus, verse 14, entered Peter's house, 
Jesus saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Jesus touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve Jesus. That evening, they brought to Jesus many who were oppressed by demons, and Jesus cast out the spirits with a word, and Jesus healed all who were sick. I mean, you, you, you get the sense that this whole story is about Jesus and his power, what he is bringing to bear on this situation. You see, it's not about a formula when we pray for healing. It's not about a set of practices or rituals. It's not about a mindset, oh, I'm not really feeling sick. It's, it's not about some kind of superior morality. It's about Jesus coming into the situation who Jesus is, bringing his full presence and power to bear in that situation. You see, as we were looking in this last few weeks at the series beforehand, we saw that Peter confessed who Jesus was. Peter was able to recognize that Jesus was the Christ. And that's the Greek term for the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one, the king. What Peter recognizes is that Jesus is the long-awaited anointed king who's going to put the world back together. That's what Peter recognizes. And so if we recognize that Jesus is the Christ, if he's the king, then hear this, wherever Jesus goes as king, he brings his kingdom. Wherever Jesus goes, in breaks the kingdom. See, he begins in this, in this passage back in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 17. It begins by Jesus saying these words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is announcing his kingdom. And then do you know what he does is in chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's gospel, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus effectively teaches about the kingdom. Let me tell you how the kingdom works. You've got the king saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've got the king explaining how the kingdom works. And then in chapters 8 and 9, you've got all these healing stories which is Jesus bringing his kingdom to bear in these broken lives. It all sums up in chapter 9, verse 35, when Matthew writes these words. He says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And they go hand in hand. So he's going around, the king is going around, proclaiming, speaking about the good news of the kingdom and healing, which is the outworking of the kingdom. He's putting the kingdom on display. As Tom Wright says, Jesus has come to put the world's world to rights. Or even better, how Mr. Beaver from the Chronicles of Narnia says of Aslan, the Christ figure, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrow will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter knows its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Jesus enters Peter's mother-in-law's house. And the kingdom of heaven enters with him. That's how this is Christ-centered. I mean, we see this when we're in the hospital with loved ones. Or when we're facing down something that really scares us with an ailment or an illness. We say, Lord, how can I pray? What do I pray? And in one sense, this Christ-centered nature of prayer for healing means it is as simple as saying, Lord Jesus, come and bring your kingdom here. This is what it means to pray for healing, a Christ-centered 
prayer. But it's not just that it's Christ-centered, it's also cosmos-wide. This is for the whole of creation. This goes everywhere. See, verse 14 goes on to say that Jesus is healing Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever. Now, just as a side note, it's just important to notice there that Peter's got a mother-in-law. Peter's married. We often forget that, don't we? Peter's married. And, and, and I, I just, when I think of that, I think that's, that's great because we, we know that reality, right? Behind every great man is a great woman, right? Or as the Canadian philosopher Jim Carrey says, behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes. Um, but in honesty, what I like with this is that Peter's married and therefore likely has children. And what that means is his faith and his life is lived out in that context, like real world stuff that we all deal with every day. That's Peter's life. He's married. He's likely got kids. But here's the shock. The shock is that Jesus is healing a woman. I mean, it's not a shock for us today, but man, it's a shock for Jesus' day. And I know it's hard for us to understand this, but in the ancient Near East, there was a very different view of women. I mean, in the ancient Near East, even in a Jewish, in a Jewish worldview, Jewish men would pray the 18 benedictions every day, the 18 blessings of God. And it would include this prayer. Every day a Jewish man would say, Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, who has not made me a slave, who has not made me a woman. That's the world into which this moment happens. And you see it even reflected in the temple structure. And this is important. The temple structure. See, the way the temple was structured is there was four precincts. Four areas, okay? A fifth area, I guess you could say, was the world. So you've got the world out there, and then you've got the wall of the temple. And then inside, the first precinct is the court of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles could come in, right? All the unclean people have to stay out of the temple altogether. But, you know, the, the better Gentiles could come into the court of Gentiles. But then there's a division, keeping the Gentiles going any further. Next is the court of the women. The Jewish women could go in there, but there is a barrier the Jewish women cannot go into the next session, which is the holy place, which is for the Jewish men. And even there, there's a final barrier which goes into the holy of holies, where Yahweh himself dwells. And the only one that can go in there is the high priest once a year in Yom Kippur to pray for the nation. All these divisions, all these precincts, right? You've got the, you've got the, the unclean, out there in the world. They can't even come near the temple. Then you've got the court of the Gentiles. And then you've got another barrier, right, to keep the Gentiles from moving into the Jewish court of women. And then another barrier, I'm making a point for, I'm repeating this for a reason. And there's another barrier so that the women can't go in where the men are. The men, the Jewish men are there and they cannot go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest. And what's amazing about that is when you see what Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 8. Look at the order of the miracles. Look at the order of the miracles. What does he do? In order. Jesus heals a leper first. God can touch someone even outside of the temple walls. Next, he heals a Gentile. 
God can even heal a Gentile, breaking down these walls of division. Then he now heals a woman, breaking down the wall for her to get into the next section. God can even reach out to a woman. And finally, he is about to, at the end of this story in chapter 27, break down that final dividing wall of hostility as he bears the sin of humanity, as he cries out on the cross, taking our sin, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he dies, we are told the final division, the temple curtain was torn in two. Jesus, as Dale Bruner says, is the great wall breaker. Every division is broken down. He is saying that there is no place in my creation that my healing cannot go to. There is no one who is too far from God. We need to be shocked about how far God's healing can go. We need to, be, we need to shock ourselves at this story. Because who are the people in our lives who, if we're honest, we have categorically put them outside of the touch of God? Oh, they're too far gone. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I had a guy in my youth group, 16-year-old. He's the kind of guy that every youth pastor prays would find another youth group. If I was Texan back then, I would have said, bless your heart. He was offensive, he was inappropriate, he was rude. He would interrupt me when I was teaching. I didn't like Justin. I put up with Justin. Well, a couple years later, after I'd left and gone off and been ordained, it was in another parish, I got a phone call from the rector of the church saying, would you be willing to come back to the parish on this particular weekend because Justin has met the Lord and has become a Christian and he wants you to baptize him. And I felt ashamed because in my mind, Justin was outside the walls. God can't touch this one. God can't heal that one. We need to recognize that when we pray for healing, it's not just that it's Christ-centric, all about Jesus, but that it's also for the whole of the cosmos. It's for the whole of creation. But not only is it Christ-centered, and not only is it cosmos-wide, but finally praying for healing is catechetical. It's about teaching. As we pray for healing, we are taught something. It teaches us the main points of our prayer life for others and ourselves. You see, verse 18 gives us an even greater shock, even a greater shock than the fact that Jesus is healing a woman. Verse 18, now when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. What that means is that Jesus, after this amazing evening of healing, all the people gathering around him, has this crowd around him asking for more. And what does he do? He says, it's time to go. We got to go somewhere else. Which means Jesus left the crowd behind the crowd ends up trying to follow him as we carry on, but he's leaving the crowd behind. What that means, if you can hear it, is there were needy, broken, sick people around Jesus that day when he said, no, I got to go. Some people who were asking Jesus to heal them, who were gathering around him, didn't get healed that day. How could he leave these people? Could you imagine the shock of the disciples? I mean, I can almost hear Peter saying to Jesus, Jesus, Hold on, 
You said we're supposed to leave. Do you see the crowds? Like we've had a surge in ministry. This is going so well. Judas has gone off and booked an arena and a private jet. I mean, you can't walk away now. Why would Jesus leave this crowd behind? Because Jesus was on his way to ultimately complete his mission, which was not to be this one-man healing station. He had a bigger job to do, a bigger healing to accomplish. You see, what Jesus was doing in these moments when he'd heal people is he was giving them, let's be careful, he was giving them only partial healings. Partial healings. It wasn't the full healing because these people who healed would eventually get sick again. Their bodies would break down and die. Even Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, would one day have his body break down, deteriorate, and die. His healings were just partial. But he didn't come for a partial healing. He came for a full healing to accomplish for us. And we see that in verse 15 in the whole Gospels right there. Verse 15 of our text. It says that as Jesus came into Peter's mother-in-law's house and saw that she was sick with a fever, verse 15 says, and he touched her hand and the fever left her. The entire gospel is contained there. Because you see, in the ancient Near East, again, the belief was that you never would want to touch an unclean person or a sick person because whatever was affecting them would transfer into you. You don't touch sick people. Even Greek doctors would use instruments to keep a distance from the patients because they did not want that disease or that uncleanliness to transfer into them. Can you imagine the shock for the disciples when he walks into the room, she's lying sick in the bed, she's a woman, she's sick, and he reaches out and he touches her hand. Jesus, what are you doing? The sickness is going to go in to you. Which, of course, is why Matthew, in verse 17, quotes Isaiah 53, says, this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said 800 years earlier of the Christ, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Because see, it's not just these momentary partial healings that Isaiah is talking about. If you keep reading what Isaiah says, it's pointing to a much deeper healing that is needed, a much deeper bearing of our illnesses and our burdens and our sin. Chapter 53 of Isaiah, after it says, Surely he took our illnesses and bore our diseases, goes on to say, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. The healing that he has come to accomplish is the ultimate healing of our sin and our death. In this moment when he takes Peter's mother-in-law's hand and he touches her, that shock, Jesus, where's that disease going to go? It's going to go into you. He's saying, do you not see? Do you not see that I come 
to bear everything wrong in you in me. As he's dying on the cross, taking everything that is wrong in you and me, in himself, Jesus lived the life we should have lived. Jesus died the death we should have died. The whole picture of Jesus' ministry is taking what is wrong in us into himself. And this is why praying for healing is catechetical. Because see, we're praying for partial healing. Oh Lord, would you rescue and save and heal this loved one or even myself in this moment? But even more than that, Lord, I recognize that's not really ultimately why you just came. You came to heal me. You came to heal her and him at the core of their being. Lord, do that work. Do you see how praying for healing catechizes us? It gets us back to the main point. All those years praying for our daughter's healing was catechizing me in how to pray for her ultimate healing. Lord, I'm not just asking for you to rise her out of this hospital bed, which I am asking, but I'm ultimately asking as well that one day, whether it's a day from now or decades from now, that when her body finally does break down, that you would one day raise her from the dead. This is how prayer for healing catechizes us to truly pray. Do you believe, do I believe that God heals today? Do you and I pray for healing? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.